0: Welcome to Blank Canvas, the podcast that explores the histories, mysteries, and eccentricities of art. I am your host, Bridget Ginter. Andy Warhol, the founder of American Pop Art, known best for his celebrity portraits and soup cans, was obsessed by a handful of reoccurring themes. Beauty, found in celebrity culture. greed found in American consumerism, and death, which touches all of us when we least expect. Andy Warhol died over 30 years ago on February 22, 1987. He was only 58 and had been recuperating in a New York hospital after a so-called routine gallbladder surgery. However, during the surgery, his heart stopped in his sleep. At least, That is the story. When we look further, the surgery was anything but routine. Andy had been ill, dying from the inside out for the last 20 years. Andy Warhol was intriguing. He was an enigma. He was flamboyantly gay in the 1950s and 60s when homosexuality was criminalized and stigmatized. He was an outsider that desperately wanted to be an insider. He was a man of few words and enjoyed the attention of the celebrities that he cavorted with. People like Mick Jagger, Jerry Hall, Prince, Liza Minnelli, Madonna, and Farrah Fawcett. However, he was also vain, insecure, distrustful. He wore wigs to hide the fact that he was bald later in his life. How did Warhol get this way? Warhol famously said, I just do art because I'm ugly and there's nothing else for me to do. Arguably, two of his most iconic works of art are his Campbell soup cans and his Marilyn diptych, both created in 1962. Both carry these utterly Warhol themes of fame, death, and consumerism. Andy Warhol was much more than an artist. He collaborated with fashion designers. He produced plays. He produced music. He even founded his own celebrity gossip magazine, Interview. He was also deeply obsessed with mortality, an obsession that grew immensely with his own brush with death in 1968 when he was shot by a radical, homeless, feminist playwright. Who was he? Let's delve more into the life of Andy Warhol, because before there was a work of art, there was a blank canvas. Andy Warhol did not start his life in full glam, despite how he probably wishes he did. Although a young Warhol always exhibited a talent for art, he began his career not in the fine arts but as a commercial artist. He worked on graphics for advertising campaigns and that sort of thing. He also designed footwear, but commercial art didn't quite cut it for him. He used his day job as a commercial artist to fund his passion, creating works of art that he actually wanted to make. Warhol started showing some of his works at galleries around New York City, all while keeping his day job. Some of his early works in the 1950s were sketches, titled Boy Drawings. These were studies of the nude male form. These drawings, particularly of two men embracing, were not accepted in the 1950s to New York gallery life. At this time, artists such as Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko were the artists that galleries were after. These artists exhibited the typical male artistic ideal of the 1950s—heterosexual, strong, and conceptually intelligent. Warhol definitely never hid his sexuality, but he soon realized that continuing to create his nude boy portraits were not going to make it rain. It just wasn't what the art world wanted to buy. So, he looked to other sources for inspiration. As a child, Warhol was chronically ill with a rare neurological disease that often kept him home from school. During this time home from school, he would read celebrity magazines. This was the beginning of his fixation on Hollywood stars and celebrity. It is no great leap that he would decide to turn his artistic attentions to popular culture. The pop art movement originally began in Great Britain and was inspired by everyday life and consumer culture. In the early 1960s, Warhol started creating his first pop art paintings. His first subject was Coca-Cola. Some may wonder why Coca-Cola? It was not a random choice. When asked about Coca-Cola as a subject, Andy said, A Coke is a Coke, and no amount of Coke can get you a better Coke than the one the bum on the corner is drinking. All Cokes are the same, and all Cokes are good. To this I say, very true, Andy. Well said and well put. Andy, do you feel that the public has insulted your art? Uh, no. Why not? Uh, Well, I hadn't thought about it. It doesn't bother you at all then? Uh, no. Well, do you think that they've shown a lack of appreciation for what pop art means? Uh, no. Andy, do you think that pop art has sort of reached the point where it's becoming repetitious now? Uh, yes. Do you think it should break away from being pop art? Uh, no. Are you just going to carry on? Uh, yes. It is this idea of the equality associated with consumerism that fascinated Warhol. Remember, the 1950s was really the beginning of mass advertising and consumer culture. Everyday objects were coveted because of how they could make you feel or appear. This gave objects a sort of power over the consumer, This is the power of advertising, creating a concept drawn to entice people beyond their everyday circumstances. Remember, this is before Instagram models. Warhol looked to consumer advertising as a basis for his art. And this makes sense, knowing this was where his background in art started. One thing we can definitely agree about Andy Warhol is that he was a pretty intelligent guy. He knew how people thought, how people felt. He knew how to make art that was relatable to his audience. Whether you like his art or not, Andy Warhol's artistic legacy lives on because it was so cutting edge for the period in which he produced it. In 1962, Warhol started to experiment with using photographic silkscreen printing. This becomes his most widely used medium. The silkscreen process allowed him to easily take images from popular culture and reproduce it into art. This is how we get his iconic images of celebrities, from Marilyn Monroe to Elizabeth Taylor to Elvis Presley. Marilyn Monroe tragically died of an apparent overdose in August of 1962. We all know Marilyn the original blonde bombshell, sexy, glamorous, and now eternally youthful, dead at the age of 36. Warhol became captivated by her untimely death, and in the following months created over 20 silkscreen paintings of her. They are all based on the same publicity photo from the 1953 film Niagara, The film catapulted Monroe into stardom, cementing her place as the world's most desirable woman. Niagara is also a fun watch if you are ever alone on a Friday night. I highly recommend it. Two of his most well-known works from this period are his Marilyn diptych and the gold Marilyn. A diptych is two flat plates attached at a hinge Usually, they were reserved for religious subjects and often functioned as an altarpiece. The idea of fusing religious iconography with celebrity ran deep with Warhol. Warhol was raised in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Religious Iconography specifically Byzantine icons, is a large part of the history of the Eastern Orthodox Church. In 1962, Warhol also created his Gold Marilyn, which is now at the MoMA. Gold Marilyn is also a powerful fusion of this religious iconography with celebrity. One can only assume that part of Warhol's message was the power of celebrity on our modern culture and how, in some way, these celebrities become more than mere mortals through their fame. They become timeless, immortal, perhaps even godlike. Celebrity and Warhol went hand in hand. Death did as well. The 1960s were a time of prosperity for Warhol. In 1963, he started his Death and Disaster series, that used images of suicides, car crashes, and other tragic events that he contained from magazines and newspapers. Similar to his images of Campbell's soup cans, or the images of Marilyn, Warhol depicted death in repetition over and over. The same image. These images of death are controversial in that they are real people dying reproduced for art. In reproducing their image, Warhol is commemorating the dead, but at the same time, the repetition takes away from the severity of what has occurred. Warhol talked about this desensitizing towards violent images, stating that when you see a gruesome picture over and over again, it really doesn't have any effect. And that was what Warhol was trying to do. He was trying to change the effect that these images had on us. It is an interesting juxtaposition of reverence for the nameless dead, while also being a bit gruesome and detached. In 1964, Andy Warhol opened an art studio in Midtown Manhattan. This place became known as the Silver Factory, as it was decorated in silver paint and aluminum foil. The Silver Factory became a place of creativity, parties, artistic experimentation, and drug experimentation. Quickly, it became a place where artists, celebrities, and creative individuals flocked to. Warhol also started experimenting with short films, and eventually even made a somewhat commercially successful film called The Chelsea Girls. In 1967, Andy lost the lease on the location of the original Silver Factory. He moved to a new location, still calling it The Factory. It is at this time in the swinging 60s that Andy was a very successful artist, both in film and the visual arts. He was also dabbling in plays. An invitation to The Factory was an open invitation to party. Be creative, use drugs, and meet an interesting mix of individuals. The factory was a place of so-called sexual radicals, for the 1960s at least. Andy Warhol's films and work at the factory openly disregard conservative American views. Most of his works filmed at the factory featured drug use, nudity, graphic sex, and even same-sex relations and transgender characters, which was quite revolutionary for the time. The factory was a place that embraced that which was not mainstream. Andy often found his actors and actresses for his films when he was out and about on the town. One of these actresses was Candy Darling, whom Warhol met at an after-hours New York City LGBTQ-friendly club. Candy, like Andy, spent her childhood obsessed with Hollywood actresses and learned to impersonate many of her favorite leading ladies, such as Kim Novak. Candy was also a trans woman. And he came into a luncheonette where I was working as a waitress. <laughs> and he came over to me and said, you should be in movies. With Yeah. But the luncheonette was like 6 in the morning and it was called Paradise Heaven or something. No, what was it called? It was... Oh, I know. T- oh, it was uh, the tw- 12th of Always. 10th of Always. 10th of Always. Tell us about the film. What's, what's the film like? uh, It's called Blonde and a Bum Trip. What's it about? It's about um, a naive young lady who goes to Hollywood to make it big. Candy is a man, but in Warhol's phrase, she's a real lady. I'm the new girl in town. And I meet Rita Hayworth, Jane Fonda, Lana Turner, Kim Novak all the glamour girls and uh, i interview them and cut them apart and then at the end of the film i get m- i'm murdered i think we haven't figured it out. candy darling was a remarkable person in her own right today she has become a sort of trans icon but it is warhol that is credited as discovering her in her short-lived career, she went on to play a role in mainstream Hollywood films that starred actresses such as Jane Fonda and Sophia Loren. Darlene tragically died at age 29 of lymphoma. She exemplifies the kind of people that Warhol surrounded himself with, larger-than-life icons that lived fast, hard, and unapologetically. With a new studio, a newfound fame, and success, the year 1968 marked a turning point for Andy Warhol. 1968 was also the year that a woman named Valerie Solanas published The Scum Manifesto. Many of you are probably wondering, what the hell is The Scum Manifesto? Also, why are we talking about this? I thought we were talking about art. Trust me, it will all make sense. The Scum Manifesto was a radical feminist manifesto written by Valerie Solanus. In it, Solanus argues that men have ruined our world, and it is up to women to fix all of man's mistakes. In her manifesto, Solanus states... Life in this society being at best an utter bore, and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women, there remains to civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, and eliminate the male sex. Solanus was a writer with a troubled past. She ran away from home at a young age and lived on the street. In the mid-1960s, she moved to New York City. She reportedly supported herself through begging and sex work. In 1965, she wrote a play. Up Your Ass is a play about a young angry prostitute slash panhandler that eventually ends up killing a man. Let that sit a while. The story has it that in 1967, Solanus ran into Andy outside his factory and asked him to produce an off-Broadway version of Up Your Ass. Reportedly, Andy accepted the script and said that he would read it. In the 1960s, Andy's factory films were often shut down by New York City police for obscenity. Warhol actually at one point thought that Valerie Solanas was handing him up your ass as a setup to get arrested. If only it were that simple. When Solanas tried to follow up with Warhol about the script, Andy said he lost it. Maybe he was just trying to get Solanus off his back, or maybe he really lost it. Who knows? Solanus was angry and demanded money for the lost script. Instead, Warhol gave her money to appear in two of his pictures, Bike Boy and I, A Man. I, A Man was described by Roger Ebert as a very long and pointless home movie. So it definitely was not Solanus' big break on screen. Interesting but little-known fact, the man in I, A Man was originally supposed to be played by Jim Morrison. Morrison backed out last minute and sent his friend to the set instead. Hopefully this gives you a picture of the kinds of people that were popping up around the factory. Solanas also lived at the Chelsea Hotel. The Chelsea Hotel has a long history of housing musicians and celebrities, including Arthur Miller, playwright and third husband of Marilyn Monroe, Tennessee Williams, Jack Kerouac, Jane Fonda, Tom Waits, Patti Smith, Jim Morrison, Edith Piaf, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, and Janis Joplin. In the words of Penny Lane, it's all happening, or it was all happening in those days at both the factory and the Chelsea Hotel. Valerie Solanus just happened to be there. Why am I talking about this random lady that wrote a radical feminist manifesto that you probably never heard of? Side note, the S-C-U-M reportedly is an acronym for Society for Cutting Up Men, although Solanus later denied this. There is no other reasonable explanation for what scum refers to. For some reason, Valerie Solanus thought that Andy Warhol had some kind of conspiracy to steal the script for Up Your Ass, and that was why he never returned it. Solanus definitely was unraveling. Solanus desperately tried to peddle her script for Up Your Ass to three other potential producers in an attempt to gain traction for the production. Sadly for Solanus, no one was having any of Up Your Ass. After being turned down by one last producer... Solanus made her way to the factory on June 3rd, 1968. She said she wanted to see Andy to get her money. Although she was told that Andy was not coming in until later in the day, Solanus decided to ride the elevator up and down and up and down until finally, later in the day, Andy arrived in the elevator to go up to the factory. Solanus and Andy entered the factory together. At this point, the telephone rang. Andy picked up the phone. Solanus pulled out her gun. She shot three times at Andy. She then shot art critic Mario Amaya and lastly went for Fred Hughes, Andy Warhol's manager. But her gun jammed. All of the people she shot were men. Her manifesto had become her reality. Andy Warhol was transported to the hospital, where he underwent a five-hour operation to repair his internal organs. He never fully recovered, but we'll get into that later. Later in the day, Solanas turned herself in to the police and confessed to the shooting. She explained her motive, which was that Andy, quote, "...had too much control in my life." It would seem for Solana's art imitated life, or she imitated her art. However you want to view it, Andy Warhol was never the same. The shooting left him physically and mentally scarred, damaging eight internal organs. The incident and numerous surgeries that followed required that Warhol wear a corset for the rest of his life. Perhaps some of you already know this story, but many of you perhaps don't. Maybe it's because Andy Warhol survived. And maybe it's because a few days later, Robert Kennedy was tragically assassinated. This incident was pivotal in Andy Warhol's life. Andy Warhol talked about his life after the accident. Before I was shot, I always thought that I was more half there than all there. I always suspected that I was watching TV instead of living life. People sometimes say that the way things happen in movies is unreal. But actually, it's the way things happen in life that's unreal. The movies make emotions look so strong and real, whereas when things really do happen to you, it's like watching television. You don't feel anything. Right when I was being shot, and ever since, I knew that I was watching television. The channels switch, but it's all television. Andy went on to more commercial and artistic success but the attack always stayed with him. He later became a champion of young artists of the 1980s, such as Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. He also sought out wealthy patrons for portraits. He painted portraits of many stars of the 70s and 80s, such as Prince and Billy Idol. His most commercially successful and famous works definitely belonged to the beginning of his career. This is really where he found his style and his public persona that he would display to the outside world. In the early 1980s, Warhol continued to be a hot commodity. He was able to remain relevant due to his mentorship of younger artists and his enduringly unique personality. In interviews, Warhol always emphasized routine, repetition, and a kind of nonchalance and disengagement. He is aloof, yet behind his aloofness is a deep-rooted pain. Do you believe in feelings and emotions? Well, no, I don't, but uh, I have them. Um, I, wish, I wish I didn't. But you'd like to get rid of them altogether, would you? Uh would be a good idea, yeah. Why, do you think you'd be happier, but happiness is a feeling too, isn't it? Uh well no, just, just you know, just a feeling of doing the right you know, just getting by. But do you think that the important thing in life is getting by? Uh yes I do. More and more? Uh yeah. When you look back, um, after all, you were successful before you became an artist. Um, do you ever wish you hadn't become an artist? Uh, well, no, I'm not, well, when I was doing that, I was doing the same thing, so I'm really not doing anything different. But well, when you were doing windows and drawing shoes and so on. Well, I, I'm drawing shoes again now, so I don't see it any different. When questioned, Warhol maintained that he enjoyed the routinization of his life that he has been doing the same thing for the last three decades as a career, and that he enjoys doing these things the same way every day. It is a sort of boredom and respect for monotony. It is this obsession and particularity for the same thing over and over that is also mirrored in Andy's work. Well, I just like to have the same breakfast, have the same lunch, walk to work, answer the same phone calls, and do the same paintings, do the same thing every day. In January of 1987, Warhol was exhibiting signs of illness, but was still maintaining his busy schedule. He was also taking his daily dose of speed and eating very little. Andy needed surgery on his gallbladder. But, due to his fear of hospitals after his many, many surgeries following being shot, he did not want to go under the knife, yet again. It was a necessary surgery, made even more complicated by Andy Warhol's complicated medical history. For those of you questioning the impact that the 1968 shooting had on Warhol, please look at the 1969 photograph, Scars, by Richard Avedon. In Scars, Avedon captures Warhol's torso. It is cut up and segmented with multiple deep scars. When doctors had saved Andy's life, his torso was so disfigured that his belly button actually ended up on the left side of his body, just above his hip. Till the end of his life, Warhol actually had to wear compression garments to keep all of his organs inside his fragile abdomen. Going into this gallbladder surgery, the surgeon not only had to take out Warhol's gallbladder, but also repair part of Warhol's fragile abdominal wall. In February 1987, Warhol went to the hospital to have his operation performed. Although Warhol came out of surgery seemingly ok, it is the afterward that things went wrong. After going in for his routine gallbladder surgery, Andy Warhol died of a cardiac arrhythmia in February 1987. He was only 58 years old. Although some family members blamed the hospital and doctor for negligence, more recent information shows that Andy Warhol's gallbladder surgery was anything but routine. Upon taking the gallbladder out, it was riddled with gangrene. It would appear that after the multitude of surgeries to repair his torso after being shot, Warhol was desperately afraid to go back into surgery, so put it off. Warhol also was not going into surgery in the best of health. Just like many other celebrities that frequented Studio 54 in the 70s and 80s, Warhol used drugs, such as speed, habitually. All of these factors lead to a very unfortunate early death, from what would otherwise have been a routine surgery. Andy Warhol's legacy lives on through his foundation, the Andy Warhol Museum in his hometown of Pittsburgh, as well as, of course, his prolific art that is everywhere. You may enjoy Andy's work, or you may not find it to be your cup of tea. Regardless, we can all agree that he blurred the lines between art and consumer culture. He also relished in the role of the artist as both a celebrity, while also being somewhat of a social outcast. He paved the way for other queer artists such as Robert Mapplethorpe. Andy Warhol was many things, but one thing we can agree upon, he was not forgettable. Mr. Landon invented this great maybe camera. Maybe a a couple big smiles, big smiles. Yeah, let's, let's, do, let's do the big smiles. smiles. Uh, uh, well, actually, I, I try to make people look good. All of the works referred to in this episode are in the show notes. You can also see more of the artworks by following us on Instagram at blank underscore canvas underscore podcast, or you can find us on our website, blank canvaspodcast.com. new episodes will be released on Wednesdays. We are looking forward to your feedback. So if there are any artists in particular that you're wanting to hear more about, feel free to reach out to us on our website or Instagram until next time. Thank you for listening to Blank Canvas. This podcast is researched, written, produced, and presented by myself. I would like to thank my amazing audio engineer, Mandy, of Resonant Recordings, who helps me with sound. These four episodes complete our miniature season one of Blank Canvas. As this podcast is almost a one-woman show, your support really matters. If you would like to hear more Blank Canvas, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. We look forward to coming back for Season 2. Among the artists we plan on featuring in Season 2 includes notable female artists, including one known for her surrealist portraiture, and her eyebrows. Stay tuned.